important piece of first aid equipment that anyone has is their brain. There's an amount of risk that we can never fully mitigate when we decide to ski an avalanche path. Um, we're, but we're, we're trying to weigh the odds. This is Jenna Malone, and you are listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. You are tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast, your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community. I'm your host, Brooke Shiny Edwards. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by Vissen Avalanche Control, safety through innovation. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people with a curious fascination of avalanches. Happy New Year's, everyone! May 2023 be full of deep pow, sexy turns, and stable snowpacks, wherever your skis, boards, and machines decide to take you. I am so honored to be kicking off 2023 as a guest host for this podcast, and I'm super excited to bring you a deep conversation with my dear friend, Jenna Malone. Jenna wears a ridiculous number of hats in the avalanche and snow world, including, but not limited to, being a part-time ski patroller at Alta, a heli-ski guide at Powderbird, an avalanche instructor for the American Avalanche Institute, a Denali rescue volunteer and board member, a council member for the city of Brighton, Utah, and as if that wasn't enough, she's also a physician's assistant in neurosurgery, trauma, and critical care. When I caught up with Jenna this past fall, Somehow, between joining her at Powderbird Beacon Training, Utah's Pro Saw, and a brief stint uh, canyoneering and mountain biking in skeleton suits throughout the week of A Day of the Dead in Moab, we managed to cover a lot of catching up about her recent talks at a variety of conferences. Of course, we had to take a break here and there to let her attend a council meeting or two, and a shovel out her van as the Wasatch got buried in its early season snows. In this conversation, we dive into some of the talks that Jenna has delivered around the globe, exploring everything from decision-making to the most recent medical research that she's found surrounding survivors of accidental hypothermic cardiac arrest. Additional support for this episode is provided by Cal Topo. Planning your day in the backcountry is an essential part of managing your risk. Tour planning is made simple by CalTopo with a bucket full of features offered in their desktop and mobile applications. Set yourself up for a smooth day by previewing terrain with CalTopo's vast selection of mapping layers, including topo maps, satellite imagery, and slope angle shading, just to name a few of the many options. Anticipate and manage your time with simple travel time and elevation profile tools. Create maps, then collaborate and share them with your touring partners seamlessly so that everyone is on the same page about your plan. 
Once your map is created on your desktop and saved to your account, it'll show up on your mobile device to be downloaded for offline use in the backcountry. Follow CalTopo on Instagram to see more features and tutorials of my favorite mapping software. CalTopo is offering the Avalanche Hour podcast listeners 10% off any individual CalTopo subscription. Go to caltopo.com slash subscription and use coupon code AVALANCHEHOUR to get 10% off. This discount can be applied to a new or existing CalTopo subscription at time of account renewal. Subscribe today and set yourself up for a great day in the backcountry. So, without further ado, I give you the highly accomplished and humble Jenna Malone. Welcome, Jenna. Thank you for joining me and calling in from the Wasatch today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Nice. Well, I um, I feel like in this short hour-long podcast, we're not even going to even scratch the surface of all the different work you do in the snow and avalanche <laughs> world. But why don't we start from the very beginning? What, Where did you get your start in the whole world of snow? What introduced you to this passion? I was really lucky to grow up in a skiing family. Um, I grew up in upstate New York, and um, my grandfather and dad were both volunteer ski patrollers at the local hill there um, that we could we could see from our house. And so my grandfather taught um, all four of us kids to ski from a pretty early age. I think we all started around three. Um, and then um, I... I uh, I followed one of my older sisters out west after college. Uh, she was ski bumming in Jackson Hole, and so I followed her out in uh, in the late nineties. And um, you know, my my dream job there was to uh, get a job on the Jackson Hole Ski Patrol. Uh, but uh, as a as a twenty something who didn't know the mountain, um, they that was, uh, that was not within my grasp initially. <laughs> um, so I got a job on the race crew and, uh, and then, uh, a few years later, um, was able to get my foot in the door being a dispatcher and then got a job as a worker or, uh, or line patroller the next year. Um, and around the same time I had started teaching for Knowles and, um, took a winter instructor seminar and, um, had Don Sheriff as an instructor on my Knowles level one. Um, and that, that kind of started the whole thing. Wow. The one degree of Don Sheriff. I feel like we could <laughs> do a family tree in the avalanche and snow world that just all circled back to yeah, big Don. 100%. It's true. <laughs> I, nice. I feel like when I say he's my mentor, uh, there are like a thousand other people that, that would say the same thing, right? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's interesting that you grew up in a family of patrollers. So that totally makes sense that that would be the way that you would want to enter that world. But it's so like kind of a chicken or the egg thing is that the ski patrol world learning medicine in the outdoor framework, is that what led you to want to go to med school and become a PA or, or what informed that decision? 
So I, when I moved to Jackson, I actually took a wilderness EMT class at the Teton Science School, and that was before getting my job on the on the patrol at Jackson. Um, and I, um, I then later got a job in the ER um, in uh, in Jackson at the Saint, at St. John's Medical Center. And uh, just realized that I, I really liked taking care of patients and wanted to learn more. And I worked with a couple of really cool PAs there in Jackson, um, Chuck Harris and Lanny Johnson. They had both been um, climbing rangers in Grand Teton National Park. Um, Lanny was a flight nurse before going to PA school. And um, Chuck was a, um, a, a medic. And... Um, and it was the first time I had really heard of or worked directly with any PAs, and so um, that was that was kind of what what spurred my interest in that. And then, yeah, the little bit of trauma that we saw in Jackson also piqued my interest in in wanting to go to PA school. Yeah. So your specialty right now as a PA is in neurosurgery and trauma, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm um I'm primarily neurosurgery though we we have a lot of overlap with trauma and then I fill in um occasionally for the trauma team. Um and then I was working a bit in the respiratory ICU during our our COVID surge over the last couple of years. Right. So from Jackson and the Knowles world, uh you ended up traveling somehow down to Alta. What was that progression like? How did you end up in Utah where you're at now? So I, when I left Jackson to go to PA school, I really wanted to keep my feet in the snow industry. And I was lucky because there had been some hiring crossover um, previously between Jackson and Alta. And so I just reached out to Piney and asked if I could attend their refresher. Um, and I volunteered at the Alta Medical Clinic my first year and just kind of um, got to know the Hill and got to know some of the patrol and then uh, applied to be a um, a part-timer the next year. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's it's been awesome. It's It's an amazing crew of people and I feel, you know, that I, I'm just so grateful that I've been able to work for two of what I would consider to be the best ski patrols in the West, really. Um, I've learned so much from uh, both of those crews, and uh, it's it's a wonderful group of people. Yeah, incredible experience. I feel like we could create a board game of your life that was like, <laughs> and, then, and then from Jackson Hole Ski Patrol to Alta Ski Patrol, which then... Probably is how you met like people on Powderbird and ended up beginning to get into the heli ski guide world a little bit too. It's just like you, you know, you progressed on the board game to that section. And I don't know which came first. Did you did you go down the street that was avalanche education or did you go down the street that was heli ski guide? This I, is a I fun, fun I, game. I, uh, I'll take heli skiing for five hundred. Um, <laughs> I had a friend, um, Mark Kozak, a good friend of mine who uh, used to be a forecaster up in Alaska, actually, and he had worked, um, he worked for one of the ski shops in Jackson and did a little bit of work with the patrol with the forecasting office. And he had moved down here around the same time and, um, and uh, introduced me to the owners of Powderbird at the time. Um, and, uh, 
and encouraged me to apply um, to be a tail guide there. And, um, and I was able to work into a really nice niche there because the, um, the nurse who had been tail guiding and teaching their refresher early in the season was about to retire. I think the year I came on, uh, he had decided that he was, he was moving on. And so it was just kind of, um, uh, it was some auspicious and very lucky timing for me. Um, and so, uh, since I've started there, I've, helped them with their, uh, their OEC training after emergency care training, uh, which is a, a fun, um, well, fun for some people, I guess, <laughs> uh, <laughs> for, for those of us who work in healthcare, it's a little bit more fun to think about, I think, providing, um, medical care in a more austere environment or dynamic environment. So. Certainly. Um, and I love that you've been able to combine, again, those professions and your medical knowledge with the snow and avalanche world. And in a number of ways, too, I think that's like if you if you journey on the board game further down the line, you see how you integrated that at Denali Rescue Volunteers, too. And, I, you know, not to just jump all over the place about like all the different jobs you do, but it sort of it's informs like the conversation, brain. too, is I think that like I will, I'll eventually get to like some of the talks you've been doing nationwide and globally around trauma. But I think it's just fascinating to first know how all of these are interconnected in your life, because it is a cool intersection, I think, of like education, your knowledge of medicine overlaid with the snow and avalanche world. So can you talk a little bit about what you've done with the Denali Rescue Volunteers? Yeah. So I um, actually, it was another kind of um, intersection of um, medicine and skiing. I was a volunteer with a mission to Haiti, um, a, a surgical uh, mission where uh, we were um, providing care. Um, and um, during that um, two-week trip, uh, I met a woman named Katie Russell, um, who is uh, was at the time a surgery resident. She's now a pediatric surgeon here. And her um, partner then husband now, um, Dave Weber, was a Denali climbing ranger. And uh, Katie was the first person that said, I think you would really like uh, this this trip that they do up there. You know, in the spring, they need a bunch of volunteers to go up the mountain with the climbing rangers and help with rescue and medical care. And so she um, introduced me to Dave. And then I think the first American Avalanche Institute uh, level one that I audited when I was becoming an instructor was with Dave Weber and uh, Jake Hutchinson. And so I got to know Dave and um, he was uh, gracious enough to offer me a spot on his uh, team of volunteers. Um, and so um, it's typically about a 24-day trip in the spring during the popular climbing season on Denali, where um, you fly into the range with a climbing ranger and usually three or four other volunteers. You're typically a team of five or so, five or six. And over the course of that 24 days, you basically climb the most popular route, which is the West Buttress route um, to... 
um, the peak if you're able um, and if uh, rescue demands allow and of course if weather allows which is the the number one factor of affecting anyone's summit plans up there um, and so yeah I've, I have gone back uh, I've, I've been on that trip three times um, since 2014 so yeah, Jenna. So I'm wondering, during your time as a Denali Rescue volunteer, did you see, were you able to use where that intersection of avalanche educator meets medical professional up on Denali on, as you were on the volunteer team? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's interesting because um, avalanches are a bit of a different different beast up there. Um, I would say human triggered avalanches are fairly infrequent because most climbing teams are fairly wise about not traveling when there is heavy snowfall or a lot of wind transported snow. Um, and there, there are a lot of natural avalanches from Serac fall and during, during storms. Um, most of the natural avalanches there tend to be either triggered by Serac fall or new snow avalanches during a storm cycle. Um, but when there are human triggered avalanches, I would say they tend to be unsurvivable because most places on the route that are steep enough to avalanche also have open crevasses. So there was a fairly, uh, infamous fatality with a Japanese climbing team on Motorcycle Hill um, back in probably the early 2000s. I think Ava Latsuo actually responded with her um, avalanche search dog um, to that rescue um, or to that attempted rescue, I should say, the search. Um, and unfortunately, it was determined that um, the the climbers were not retrievable um deep in a crevasse um and there have been there have been other deaths um from um unfortunately from human triggered avalanches where people end up in in crevasses um and then with the natural avalanches you know we have these seracs that are falling fairly constantly during the warm up um on the glacier um during the day. And so measuring the alpha angle for your camp becomes really critical. Um, I remember being at 14 feet lying in my tent and hearing the Serac fall and subsequent avalanche and thinking, Oh, I hope we're far enough away from that. And, and we were, um, and, uh, I think, you know, the, uh, the 14 camp has gotten dusted with powder clouds before during really big naturals. Um, I didn't, I didn't see any that were that, that close, but um, you are constantly hearing Serac fall and, and seeing uh, avalanches triggered as a result of that. So um, we, we ended up, we were called for rescue at one point um at Windy Corner, uh, someone had noted avalanche debris and saw someone digging furiously. And so, you know, called the park service, um, and a team from below at 11,000 feet started uphill and we were at 14 feet and we started, um, gathering gear to head out. And then we got the call, the 11,000 foot team had reached them first and said, um, it was actually, um, uh, a couple climbers who had decided to put their camp in the debris. And so they were digging just to put their tent in, but, um, 
but you know, someone, of course, I would say pretty reasonably thought seeing someone digging in fresh avalanche debris that, that there'd been an accident, but fortunately they, they were okay. <laughs> it certainly uh, is like begs the question of though it's it's where there is debris there could be debris again <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah i would say that alpha angle was uh was not not one um that would would lead one to to put a tent there probably so they, they one might of those na- nature's greatest <laughs> clues right yes, exactly yes <laughs> Awesome. Well, kind of on the same vein is while we're rolling down the trauma highway is I feel like just recently you um, have presented at a trauma conference and you've presented actually all over the world. You've, I know you've gone to Japan to present and um, at lots of snow and avalanche workshops. And certainly um, it seems like you are capable of, of, giving such um, wonderful talks on everything from decision-making, which I'll have you talk about that later, but to, I, I'm fascinated by what you're finding out. It feels like you've just taken a little bit more of a deep dive into some research around avalanche burials. Is that correct? Yeah. I, I would say more specifically having to do with cardiac arrest, um, with accidental hypothermia, um, and then kind of trying to apply that to avalanche victims. So, um, I, I was asked by our trauma team to present on care of avalanche victims at our annual conference this year. And um, in looking at the literature out of Europe, um, they seem to be reporting um, pretty promising survival rates for um, severely hypothermic patients who arrive, um, you know, really looking dead. Um, But being very cold. Um, and I would say, you know, the caveat with the, a lot of these is that the vast majority of them are not avalanche victims. More of them are cold water, um, immersions, uh, where someone was able to have an air pocket for a time or, um, crevasse falls, um, or potentially just like urban, urban accidents, you know? Um, so, um, you know, it's, it's, there's probably limited application because with avalanche victims, we do have to think more about trauma. Um, but, um, for those, uh, patients who, you know, I mean, 75% of avalanche deaths are from asphyxiation and 25% are from trauma. So of those 75%, if some of those patients actually have an air pocket and get cold first uh, before they before they die, so if they if they die because their airway is obstructed and um, they uh, then get cold, then that person is much less likely to survive. But if they actually have an air pocket and their body temperature drops and they're buried for an extended period of time. So they're cold first and then their heart stops because they're so cold. Um, those patients actually have a, a higher likelihood of survival than, um, than you might think. Um, and so uh, it's, it was just interesting to look at that and think about, you know, what are the possibilities with what we call extracorporeal membrane oxygenation or cardiopulmonary bypass, where essentially you're placing a line into one 
one vessel um, and and taking the blood out, rewarming it and reoxygenating it and putting it into another vessel and putting it back in the body. Um, and it's, of course, very resource intensive. Um, and, and expensive. Um, but if, if it's possible to, to bring someone back, um, and in these cases where they have brought people back, they've had, um, full neurologic recovery, which is of course, um, as important, um, as, as, uh, as, um, waking back up. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was actually really, it's, it's really interesting research. Um, there's, I think a lot more to be done and these are really rare patients, um, that we might see, but, um, but it's, it's a, it's an interesting thing to talk about. And it's exciting, of course, to think about any, um, any potential for, um, survival in those situations. Um, you know, I, I would, with the caveat that it's certainly uh, much preferred to avoid getting caught in an avalanche in the first place. So. <laughs> right, right. It's <laughs> not like, to overstate it's... the obvious there, but you know. Yeah, yeah. It's not like you can, it's kind of like how we, uh, the risk homeostasis, you add an airbag, you're like, oh, I'm going to send it a little harder now because I have an airbag that floats me. And you're like, oh, it turns out they can like replace every blood platelet in my bloodstream right. and rewarm. <laughs> It, so I might as well just go get buried in that one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, and as, as um, I'm sure happens with all research, there's quite a bit of lag time as far as like there's the research. And then, like you said, it's a very resource intensive process. So I'm sure not every hospital is A, trained in it or B, has the equipment to do it. And then C, even has physicians that are on board that would even think of that in the ER as like, this is uh, something that we would attempt. So it does seem like maybe a long way down the tracks, but again, really exciting that, that it's out there and it has happened. And yeah, I think, I think one of the, I mean, that adage of you're not dead until you're warm and dead is, is, is mostly true. Um, You know, you could still, of course, be, um, you know, I mean, I think if people are frozen solid and have incompressible chests, then that that person is not going to survive. And there, there are some basic labs that they get that can be checked in the ER or even by the flight crew that, um, could determine if someone has, um, you know, a level of hypothermia that hypothermia that truly is unsurvivable, um, but, uh, you know, there, I mean, there are recommendations now to do intermittent CPR. So if you're, if you have an extended transport, getting someone out of the backcountry, um, it's, you know, if you had to pause for five or even 10 minutes, if someone is severely hypothermic, then that's, that, that doesn't mean that you're, you're sealing that person's fate necessarily. That could still be great care. So um, yeah, as you said, there, there's, it, you know, there's more to come. Um, but, uh, but, um, but it's, it's interesting. Yeah. I also think that's like one end of the spectrum, right? And if you come to like that, most people who are even buried, even halfway buried for a, a rem- you know, any amount of time, they're still going to have some, you know, mild to moderate hypothermia. And so I know that and as avalanche educators, we always say this isn't a wilderness medicine class. We're not here to teach you the first aid. We recommend you go get CPR and and um, 
and all of that. And yet I think about all the questions that I face around people asking like, well, what should I pack in my pack? And I look at the tiny little packs that people are bringing to the courses and heading out into the woods with. And of course I live in Alaska and I'm like, you, it's like cold and dark <laughs> quite often here. And so I'm always coaching pretty heavily on that side of, even though we're not teaching wilderness medicine is kind of pushing a little bit of that, those questions around like, well, once you get that person dug up, then what do you have in your pack? Like, what are you going to protect them from the environment? Do you find that you, because of your medical background, you tend to like lend a hand into that avalanche educator piece for you too in the same way? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think the most important piece of first aid equipment that anyone has is their brain, honestly. And and it's as you said, get the training, you know, take CPR, take a woofer. Um, and then m- more even than fancy splints or um, or specific first aid gear, I think layers are so important, especially insulating layers like down or synthetic down, because you can compress them and, um, they're lightweight. And, um, and I think, uh, I think that can make a huge difference in keeping you as the rescuer and your patient comfortable. Um, and then, you know, like a little, some sort of piece of foam or insulate pad, um, is a really good thing to have too. I think that I tend to be an overpacker, um, with my, with my back, my backpack, I tend to be carrying a lot of weight in the back entry. And so I'm, I'm trying to whittle it down. Um, but, uh, but yes, I think that, the, um, the, what we call the ski runners, people who are super fast and light. Um, you know, I think it's really important to, um, just think about the fact that you, things can go wrong and, and, and you can't rely solely on fast movement to keep you warm because you could lose that in an instant. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's why you're one of my favorite backcountry partners because I too, and I'm, I'm an overpacker and I know between us, we'll have plenty of snacks and warm layers to stay cozy, even if we sprain a knee. It's great. And lots yeah. of snacks. We always have chocolate. Right? Lots of snacks. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Um, well, I'm wondering if you could also give a little insight into like one of my other favorite talks that you've given at a number of snow and avalanche workshops, but for those folks in our audience today that might not have heard it, or maybe they need a reminder, is the one that you talk about uh, human decision-making in terms of it being more like poker than chess. Can you just give a little summary of of what that talks about? Because I absolutely love that. Great. Yeah. I um, So I um, was asked to speak at the Utah Snow and Avalanche Workshop years back, and I was looking for a topic, and I reached out to um, some mentors, and um, Sarah Carpenter is a good friend. Actually, we took our Knowles instructor course together, um, and she, you know, was previously one of the owners of AAI, um, and uh, and she recommended Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke, who is a, um, you know, she's a, a world poker champion, and um, and was interestingly a cognitive scientist before she became a poker champion. And, um, and she, uh, wrote this book looking at how we tend to give ourselves a lot of credit when we, um, have 
good outcomes. So we're not necessarily truly evaluating the, the value of our decision making. We're doing something called resulting. Um, and when we have bad outcomes, we tend to um, blame bad luck. So we take the credit when things go well. So we have a great ski day. The The great example that she used actually that I really liked was um, if you are driving at night and you run a string of red lights and it's the middle of the night and you're in a deserted part of town and so no one hits you and this is you know pretty bad decision making although maybe not as bad because it's deserted in the middle of the night but you could do this in the middle of the day in you know a busy part of salt lake for example and you you might still not end up getting hit by anyone and that's bad decision making um but it's really good luck. So, I mean, if you look solely at the outcome, you would say, you know, it, it, human nature would say, oh, I made good decisions. I got away with it. Uh, well, you wouldn't be thinking that you got away with it, but but in hindsight, you know, we look at it and say, you got away with it. So I think the, um, the challenging thing, of course, with, um, with traveling through avalanche terrain is that we often don't get feedback. And so we misinterpret the lack of feedback. You know, we don't cause an avalanche and we misinterpret that as positive feedback. Like, oh, we made the right decision where we might just not have found the thin spot or, um, you know, we, we just got lucky because even though avalanches are, can be, you know, very dangerous, you know, they're also fairly improbable. Um, you know, we get lucky a lot as people traveling through avalanche terrain. Um, but the goal with improving your decision-making, of course, is to try to increase that probability that you're not going to get yourself into a situation where you're triggering an avalanche. And she compares it to poker because she says, you know, and well, she does, she doesn't actually compare, um, avalanche forecasting to poker. I, I did that, but she compares decision-making, um, to poker in that there is a lot of uncertainty and poker has some skill. And I would argue, of course, that forecasting has some skill, but there's also some degree of luck or chance. There's a, an amount of risk that we can never fully mitigate when we decide to ski an avalanche path. Um, we're, but we're, we're trying to weigh the odds. And so, um, you know, she, she contrasts the decision-making of chess because chess is about pattern recognition and there's no luck in chess. It's really just about, um, knowing what patterns are available to you and seeing them all on the board. Um, and it's very mathematic. And so I just have noticed that in avalanche classes, I have students who will, um, want a formula, um, almost a mathematic formula for knowing when it's okay to ski a slope that's an avalanche path. And of course, you and I know that there is no magic or mathematic formula. Um, we can gather so much data. And especially now we live in such a data rich environment. We have, um, you know, especially in the Wasatch, we have observations, you know, there, there are dozens of observations coming in from the backcountry every day. We have, um, you know, we have NOAA, we have, um, uh, snow study plots all over the place. We have four different huge ski resorts in the Cottonwood Canyon. So we can, we have a lot of data points that we can gather, but 
there's always a, a percentage of risk that we're not going to be able to eliminate. And so, um, you know, so the goal is to acknowledge the uncertainty and make room for questions um, and have ski touring partners that you can have honest conversations with and that will um, will uh, call you on your blind spot. Yeah, and it sounds like even making room for questions post excellent ski day is that that adding that debrief into the the apres ski portion of the day is just to say did we did we figure it out today or did we get away with something today? And I think that I love what you're saying about humans is this resulting thing is like, we're super willing to take credit for when things go well, but we're really quick to blame nature when things go sideways. And I'm trying to grow up as a, an adult and start to own those bad decisions. And I can start to pinpoint times in my season and even times in my career where I definitely can say, oh, I, I messed up that day and I got away with something and perhaps it didn't result in an accident, but I for sure know that that was not a good, I know that I was lucky. Do you have, for you, do you feel like after studying this, are you a little bit more self-aware and do you have some standout in, um, like times in your recent past or past in your skiing career that you're like now can see with this new lens and be like, holy cow, I can't well, believe I got away with that. I I wish I could say that I have learned a lot from that. Um, <laughs> but uh, unfortunately, I had my two closest calls just this last winter. So I would say I had a huge serving of humility. Um, you know, uh, one was when I was... Uh, touring with friends and another was when I was, um, guiding and, uh, um, I was tail guiding and, um, very fortunately, knock wood, they were near misses. No one was, was hurt. Um, but, uh, man, it's, uh, it's hard. I think when I have, um, I, when I teach, you know, I teach level one, I teach from level one up to a pro one for AAI. And, um, and my goal, I used to say that my goal with teaching a level one was that I didn't want my, I didn't want to read about my students, um, in the paper or in the Utah Avalanche Center observations in, in an avalanche investigation and, and, um, and look at an accident and think, what were they thinking? And I have to say, like, I mean, after one particular close call this last winter, I thought, man, what was I thinking? And um, and it was a, a particularly, um, I don't know if I should, if I can say it's a tricky snowpack because I feel like that's giving myself um, an out a little bit. But it was um, a snowpack that was, we had a cycle where there were a lot of um, incidents involving professionals. Um, and it was a persistent week layer, which is, I, and I think, I mean, when I, when I gave, when I give the Annie Duke talk, I talk about the fact that persistent week layers are responsible for almost 70% of avalanche fatalities. When you look at the fatality by, by avalanche problem, um, when you, 
look at uh, accidents in the in the U.S. over, I think it was like the last 40 years or so. And um, Drew Hardesty writes about this in an essay um, on he, it's called Expert Intuition. It's on the on the UAC site. But um, you know, I think I think with a persistent weak layer, it's it's the one that tends to get most professionals in trouble, um, and, and recreationists as well, it turns out. Um, but I, um, yeah, I got a huge serving of humility. I felt like, um, I'm sure that a lot of people are, are familiar with Bruce Tremper's graph of the confidence level of professionals in the avalanche industry. And I definitely, um, had a, a huge drop, um, toward the end of last season. And, uh, yeah, I um I hope I hope that going forward it's going to help my decision making. Um I think it will. Um uh but I you know, I think it's it's um we all we can all make mistakes and um you know, I want I want to be better than that, but it's it's hard. It's um you know, it's a tricky, it's a tricky game out there. Yeah. And we're only human. And I, I, for one, I'm really glad that they were near misses for you and that you're Thank here you. with us today. <laughs> Me too. We're appreciative of that. Um, and I'm, I'm just wondering, I wanted to pick apart a little bit more that, that concept that persistent weeklyers get more professionals than anything else. And I, I wonder if you could even study it further, break it down by snow climates, because I look sometimes being Alaskan, I think, oh my God, I'd be terrified to live in Colorado or even Utah, Inner Mountain. Um, but that continental snowpack or that Inner Mountain snowpack where you live with dragons in your snowpacks so much more often than I do and people in Colorado all the time. And so then it's almost like that forecast fatigue that forecasters speak to is like they can't keep it at considerable all season long because people just throw considerable out the window. But then yet it's not like that persistent weak layer hasn't stopped being reactive or even touchy in some cases. And so I'm like, how do people spend a whole ski season? It, it seems like they're just risk tolerance adjust to that. And right. Yeah. I think actually Heather Tham gave a great talk on this, um, at Wysaw in 2020. Um, and I'm sure people can look it up, but she and, um, uh, I think Nikki Champion was the intern at the Chugach um, uh, Forecast Center um, that year, and um, they gathered data looking at um, avalanches um, after a, uh, an extended period with no precipitation um, at, with a a persistent weak layer. And, um, and I know there was a, there was an avalanche review article on this out of Colorado with a similar study. Um, and I think both found, um, that, uh, there was a, a, a significant drop, um, between like seven to 10 days, but yeah, um, I remember those studies. Yeah. Yeah. But of course I think about this all the time with our forecast center because we live in such an urban environment. Right. And so our forecasters have to write a forecast for, um, you know, there are 2 million people living on the Wasatch front 
And, um, you know, it's like, what day do you go from considerable to moderate? And if it's a sunny Saturday, does it give you pause, you know? And I think they've done a really good job because you can't, as you were saying, you'll cause fatigue um, if you don't mean what you say, right? Like you can't, you can't keep, you can't be afraid to bring it to moderate when, um, when you're looking at the continuum on the conceptual model and it truly is moderate by likelihood and destructive size. So, um, you know, I think it, but it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting question. I think, I mean, my friend, my forecaster friend, Mark, that lives in Telluride, you know, who used to forecast in Alaska and before that lived in Jackson said that, you know, he really, he changed his touring objectives um, and, you know, didn't change his risk tolerance, but to kind of stick with his same fairly low risk tolerance, um, stopped touring in midwinter where he was because of that continental snowpack and does a lot more touring in the spring um, when they have an isothermic snowpack. So, yeah. Yeah. So just like we would adjust terrain to fit the avalanche problem, you could adjust like the time of year to fit um, your objectives. And, yeah. And yeah. Like and that. I'm sure they, they, they uh, I'm sure they tour um, some in the winter, but I, I would guess that they're keeping their slow angles way below 30 degrees, you know? Yeah. When it's, yeah, there's a lot, there is a lot of faceting that happens in that part of the country. Yeah, yeah. Well, and speaking of risk tolerance for you is, you know, be, because you're going on any given day, you've been a patroller one day and a guide the next day, and then perhaps an avalanche educator and a recreationist all in the same week, potentially. And like, do you find your own risk tolerance really shifting and changing? And what, what are the things that impact it? Is it pressures of delivering a certain product? Is it your peer group in that profession that you're in? Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's a um, common uh, challenge in avalanche education to not say or to not teach um, do as I say, but not as I do. Um, and I remember a really interesting conversation with some AAI instructors at our staff training uh, a year ago, um, Jess Baker was one of those, um, and she's a guide up in Jackson. Um, and, you know, we talked about the fact that we shouldn't have a different risk tolerance, um, that only our objective should change when we're wearing those different hats. Um, and, uh, because I think, you know, the, the risk tolerance is always going to be, um, whatever allows you to come home safely, right? And like, no matter who you are, um, that's, that's the goal that, that everyone shares. Um, but I do think that, um, when I'm, for example, teaching youth classes, I don't really even go into avalanche terrain, right? We talk about it. Um, but I'm talking about avoidance and, um, and when I'm, with, um, you know, my regular touring partners, uh, I'm, I'm definitely going into avalanche train and skiing avalanche train. Um, but I think, I think, I don't know, I think my risk threshold 
is is lower really when I'm when I'm with um, with students. Um, I would say with professional students, maybe that increases a bit. But ultimately, whenever I feel responsible for people's safety, um, I'm going to have a wider margin. Um, and you know, I guess if I'm if I'm if I'm doing as I say, also then I should try to maintain that margin on my personal days. But I don't think that I always do. I think um, I. I think that I do, um, I do have a thinner margin when I'm, when I'm recreating. Well, I think that only makes sense is like, if I'm taking a bunch of newbies out there that I know like don't have the rescue skills to rescue me, it's, it's not only protecting them, I'm also protecting me. Whereas if you (laughs) and I go out, I'm very comfortable that you are a competent rescuer. It doesn't mean again, that I'm going to run all the red lights because you have medical <laughs> training, <laughs> but, <Please don't>. it, <laughs> but it means that I feel like I have an equal in decision-making who can hold me accountable. And so to me, that can take up some of that margin, right? It's yeah. like it, it, we just feel like the margin is then replaced with um, perhaps just a more informed uh, collaborative discussion yeah. that is equally taking part of that risk. Like, okay, if we choose to do this, we're both, we're both equally signing up to gamble with each other's lives, which we both love each other a lot. So we don't want to see, dig each other out of avalanches, right? right? So we're, no. we yes. both want to see each other come home to, to our home. So, so I think that that seems only natural that that margin would kind of naturally be a little bit of a flexible unit. Yes. Um, yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, part of um, teaching level ones is trying to encourage students to seek out the lower slope angles and learn to enjoy um, meta skipping, you know, lower angle terrain. Um, and kind of reframe their desires a bit. Um, yeah, I mean, I keep going, <laughs> hashtag make meadow skipping cool again. I mean, I don't know how many <laughs> times I have to do this hashtag, but I'm going to make it cool again. <laughs> you are. You definitely are. Yes. Um, but I, I mean, I think honestly, like in my personal life, like I love steep terrain. I love big terrain. And, um, and uh, while I... Um, I would, I would choose the conditions and the days very carefully as well as my partners, um, that I, that I, uh, choose to go into that terrain. Um, I, I am excited to continue doing that kind of skiing, even though I know that there is a level of risk that I can never completely eliminate, um, by entering into that terrain. Yeah. Okay. So here's a good kind of, Closing question for you is that in that, um, with all these new people flooding the market of backcountry skiers out there, all these new recreationalists coming in there, they're, they're entering a world where they just see on social media, the steepest, coolest, brightest, fastest, neatest, everything. Um, how do you, what would be an advice that you give to that would somehow promote that patience, that long game, perhaps to like a recreationalist who's just entering this, this incredible sport of backcountry skiing. 
Hashtag make meta skipping cool again. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I mean, we're going to do it. Yeah. We need like sparkling onesies. We need yeah. fur hats. <laughs> I don't, I don't know how to, I don't know how to teach patience. I think, um, because that's what it is. Right. And I think, I think, uh, you know, Margaret Wheeler, I think in her, she had a, um, a discussion with um, Drew Hardesty, uh, does culture eat training for breakfast, you know, where they talked about the culture, which is really like, go big, you know, go, go steep, get out there, risk it all <laughs> uh, versus, you know, and that's, that's the culture versus the training, which is, you know, put your skin track in the air slope that's less than 30 degrees and try to stick to the thickly treed train when you're going uphill and that's where you're spending the most time. And, you know, I mean, I think, um, we have, uh, we have competing desires, right? Like, and, and I think if, if I can, um, get those, um, new, those people who are new to the backcountry to, uh, first of all, embrace coming home safely at the end of the day and just try to keep that at the top of their list of desires and get the training, honestly, because, you know, a, a level one will will teach you how to avoid avalanche terrain, which in the first, you know, well, I would also say learn what the avalanche problem is or avalanche problems are that you're going to find that day and how to avoid them. Because basing your tour plan on a single word, low, moderate, considerable, or high, is not enough. You need to know what dragon you're dealing with um and 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 that will help you make more informed decisions so there's so much online education available that even if people can't get into a level one class they can take an online virtual level one from you know avalanche.org or um or the uac um i mean there there are so many resources out there so i would say get the training and uh and recognize that you know if you you know if you if you want to come home at the end of each day um you have to kind of constantly keep that in the in the front of your mind i think yeah hashtag send and return send and return yes right right yes or as the late theo miners used to say live to ski another day and I know that certainly I've been in the mountains with you and we've been making a decision and we've actually said that like, it's just skiing. It's just skiing. It's just we want to ski again tomorrow. Like, and so I, um, I want to thank you so much for sharing, uh, this little insight into all your different, uh, Jill of all trades hats <laughs> that you wear in the snow and avalanche world. I don't know how you do it and still manage to find, um, passion and time for recreational skiing, but, um, thanks for coming, ripping your skins and coming down a little bit early from your tour in the backyard <laughs> to have this conversation with me. And I certainly hope that, um, that the spring brings you and I together again, be it in Utah or Alaska to ask those questions before we go into the mountains on the tops of the mountains and always choose to come home safely to our loved ones. So thank you so much, Shanna Malone. I really appreciate it. And we'll include a lot of the talks and resources that you mentioned in the show notes for sure. Awesome. Thank you so much, Brooke. It's always such a pleasure to talk with you. I learn so much every time.
<laughs> all about, right. Well, about snow and about myself. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it's all about, isn't it? <laughs> Amen. Yes. All right. Thanks, Jenna. Thank you. Wow, what a great conversation with Jenna Malone. If you find yourself as fascinated with her incredible awesomeness as I am, then head on over to Instagram and give her a follow at jmalonski. While you're at it, go ahead and give the Avalanche Hour podcast a follow too. You can also find us on Facebook. Or if you'd like to give us any feedback at all, just go ahead and send us an email at theavalanchehourpodcast at gmail.com. Music for this episode was provided by Ketza, found at ketza.uk. And artwork was supplied by Mike T, who you can find at MikeT.com. I want to give a big shout out of gratitude to Caleb Merrill, who did all the post-interview dirty work of producing this show, and for inviting me to host. Thanks, Caleb. Well, I think that about wraps it up. Happy New Year, everyone. And just remember, we're all in this together. <laughs>